CDSW wants to hear from you. Go to cdsw.com survey to submit your feedback and be entered to win one of two Slatter Island Discovery Passes. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from the University of Calgary campus radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. We are all treaty people. Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. Our show airs at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the third Tuesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can look for the podcasts at cjsw.com. For our May episode, we have a feature interview with Edmonton writer Carissa Halton about her creative nonfiction memoir, Little Yellow House, which is shortlisted for the Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize. Shortlisted authors also include many fine Calgary writers who have been featured on Writer's Block in past episodes. Congratulations to Mike Kerr, Roberta Reese, Chris Turner, Rona Altrios, Richard Kemick, Angela Dillon, Marcello DeCintio, Clem Martini, and Joshua Whitehead for being shortlisted for various Alberta Literary Awards. The winners will be announced on June 8, 2019 at the gala in Edmonton. Award-winning writer Carissa Halton lives with her family in an urban neighborhood in Edmonton. People often ask, why do you live there? Her answer is this book, Little Yellow House, Finding Community in a Changing Neighborhood. Carissa Halton, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's start with you giving our listeners a bit of a synopsis of this wonderful creative nonfiction book, Little Yellow House. Tell us what it's about. Well, essentially, I, I set, set out, I'll tell you what I set out to do. I, my community in Alberta Avenue is just about 18 blocks north east of City Hall and right in downtown Edmonton. And um, my community is sort of known as the inner city community. When my husband and I set out to move there in 2004, we purchased this house and we were super excited about it. And we went and said to our my the woman who did my hair at the salon and to the assistant at the bank and, and to the bus driver, and I'd say, we bought a house. It's in Alberta Avenue. And everyone looked at me and said, why would you live there? You know, <laughs> it's a little bit like how you experience when you go other places in Canada and you say you live in Edmonton and they say, <laughs> why would you live there? Right? Or anywhere so, in Alberta, <laughs> actually. <laughs> you know, out in Calgary, you know that feeling a little bit too, right? So this feeling that we were kind of the armpit, the deepest section of the armpit, you know. And um, and so people kind of sort of would say, well, you'll move when you have kids, you know. And then we had kids. And you'll move when your kids go to the schools, the local schools. And well, our kids went to the local schools. Eventually, about a decade after we moved in, people stopped sort of informing us that we weren't safe to live there. And as a writer, I I was really intrigued by how how kind of visceral people's response was to where I was going to live and how certain they were that it wasn't a safe space, even if they hadn't really even visited it, right? So reputation was it kind of went before it. and um, But living there over the course of the 15 years has been one of so much um, exploration and discovery and community. And um, I mean, I think writers live in this tension where when you see this kind of tension and this kind of misperception it's kind of rife for awesome stories and um and so the other thing that we saw over the course of that time was we saw um it the city ended up coming on board to to basically present a lot of money to the community for revitalization now in 2007 or so the community of alberta avenue they'd the the city city from a big picture perspective had 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 the u of a do this report that essentially gave a quality of life score to all the neighborhoods in Edmonton. And, you know, some got luck. Some got 80, lots got 40 or 50, you know, percent. And Alberta Avenue um, got a zero. Like, 
A zero quality of life. A zero? Zero. Like, who has a zero? Like, maybe if you're in a coffin in the ground or in a black hole in space, like, who has zero quality of life? Now, lots can be, that's a whole other conversation about the discussion around how we measure quality of life. That was and, my question. Like, what, what, <laughs> what was their criteria? And I mean, I think it suggests that there's a lot of stats that are being taken, right? And those stats are being used, that data was being used to pump out sort of this quality of life number. And most of the time, the data data isn't asset-based. It tends to be on that negative side, right? So Alberta Avenue does have a higher than normal crime rate. They have uh, the, a lot of the sex trade. It lives on 118th Avenue there at Alberta Avenue that runs straight through our community. Um, most of the women that have gone missing or been murdered in Edmonton who are part of the sex trade have come from the, my community. And so um, a lot of transients, a lot of people that are newcomers or people with single families, uh, you know, all the stats that sort of show higher risk levels or higher risks of vulnerability um, those that data is being used for these for for was being used for this particular um, report and so zero quality of life and again that made me crazy like what do you mean zero quality of life and and again as a writer I thought you know one thing that's amazing about stories that science can never provide and numbers can never provide is that stories can kind of hold within itself good and bad, negative right. and positive, zero and a hundred. The hero and the arch villain. Exactly. The, a story has this ability to hold within it all sorts of paradoxes and tensions and that science just cannot give you with, uh, you know, with a, de- a number that's sort of a spit out from a data set and a, a formula, right? And so what I wanted to set out to do was, I guess, write a series of I call them literary Polaroids, like snapshots in time of a community that was what I anticipated in the process and transition of transitioning, of, of changing, right? And um, and I, I kind of think of neighborhoods um, almost like we are humans, like we have life cycles as humans. And I think neighborhoods have life cycles too. I, I mean, uh, every building, every concrete, you know, sidewalk, uh, you know, every lawn has a certain life cycle that if not renewed, if not repaved, if not some money or capital being put into it to regenerate it, it begins to fall apart, right? Yeah. Um, and so if we think about our neighborhoods as having these life cycles, I could see that Alberta Avenue was sort of in this space of, of, of having some income come in, the renewal money come in, and that it would change. And I wanted to, I guess, offer in one way, uh, like a, a bit of a literary still shot of the neighborhood from 2007 to 2015 kind of thing. And so in some ways, if you were to walk down my community, even now, three years after I wrote some of these pieces, you wouldn't be able to find you know, that business that I mentioned, because things change. So it's continually evolving. And I mean, I think it's a beauty of our communities. But um, and so I wanted to do that still shot. But then I also, at the other hand, with these essays, I wanted to provide um, kind of the real, I wanted to introduce people to the people and the places in my neighborhood that I felt offered me um, all sorts of food for thought, lessons that the heart I rather would than nev- the numbers. Absolutely. I never would have had um, without that experience of the man being murdered behind the most safest place in my, you know, in the community at a time without me going and searching out his sister and having his sister tell me his story and their story of their life together and his descent into addiction and then eventually the murder without being able to learn from Dee about her brother Danny murdered, you know, right behind my massage, you know, um, chairs, alley, I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have taken away my my sense of my own safety, you know, and, and so I think there was all these different things that made me curious about my neighborhood that the book offered me an opportunity to explore to go deeper and to kind of find the story. And so the essays switch from um, essays really of story about my family um, as I had children my husband and I living there my extended family began to move into the community so we now have my parents Matt's mom um, Matt's um, three I think 
three siblings, uh, my one sibling, and we've got multiple nieces and nephews. And so that extended family, that story, and then the story of the, the neighbors that touched my life, some of them intimately, you know, and some of them less intimately. But I think in, in, in I wanted to introduce people who just immediately said, oh, I wouldn't live there. I wanted to give them this alternative perspective of, of what this community with, in some ways, some of its, with it being so old, right? We have a bit of an ageism about neighborhoods as much as we do about humans, you know? Yeah, that's that, a very North American thing. If It's only good if it's new and exciting. Well, you read the fresh. book a little, uh, half of it in Europe, seeing the, yes. you know, had that experience. I'm interested, what did you feel like about being in Europe and reading a book in some ways about the New West and an old community in the New West, which is still only 100 well, years old? Well, it's so ridiculously not old is the first thing. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, I am from uh, Amsterdam. That's my hometown. And then I've become a Canadian living in different places. But to go back. So to go back home to my hometown, carrying your book and reading it, you know, as we sat on the train going Mm -hmm. from Holland to France or those kinds of things, it really got me thinking about what is the meaning of community? Mm. What do I miss about um, different kinds of community. So, like, a, a parallel for me was that my first apartment in Amsterdam when I was 20 years old was in this shocking neighborhood, right? <laughs> but for me, it was home. And and it was very safe. It was right. very safe because the baker knew me, the egg person knew mm-hmm. me, the neighbor, if I didn't... Mm-hmm follow my usual patterns because she hung out of the window across the street and smoked endless cigarettes Mm -hmm. she knew she knew if there was something wrong and here we have far less um neighborly feeling places right everybody's sort of i call it fortress america you drive in you drive into your garage (coughs) the door goes down you don't make eye contact with people and just the way my personality is, I prefer eye contact. I prefer having to maybe compromise some of the things that I, you know, maybe I don't like the next door neighbor's music when they're having a party on Friday night, but I'm just happy that they're in the backyard enjoying each other. I like to see life. So on that Friday night, I won't play my music Right. Well, it takes I'm okay this with that take. compromise mm-hmm. because yes, we're all humans. We all have to figure out how to to bump and move and adapt and be tolerant. That's just my value system. Like well, I'm not think, saying it's better than anybody else's. And I think in a community like Alberta Avenue or um, now in Calgary, it may be a community more like Forest Lawn. I think might be the most you know closely comparable community. Um, you know our communities in their transition have a like a, a whole wide assortment of diversity right and so because it's affordable um there's a lot of um you know people on age or there might be some group homes or there's um, a lot of seniors now there's a, because it's an older community you also have a lot of newcomers seniors that are newcomers from 50 or 60 years ago but still really mostly just speak italian right and those folks end up being around but because they're they and retired, their eyes are on the street, they're watching out for my kids. Um, You know, and and I think that that the diversity of the housing stock really offers offers this ability to kind of feel safer. And while people from outside said, oh, I saw the stats, you know, the data looks like there's lots of burglaries or there's lots of, you know, violent crime. Well, you know, when you really live there, you realize that in some ways that those stats bring you together a bit more because you're conscious that, you know, we should probably know who's, you know, know our neighbors. Yeah. We should have their phone number in case their, you know, their um, their garage door is up or in case we see something unusual or we can't find them, right? So there's these, uh, there's, you kind of watch each other a little bit closer, for instance. Like many times my kids would be walking home from the bakery and they were eight or, you know, eight or nine, walking home from the bakery a block and a half away. And they'd have people, and this is a bit creepy, they'd have people kind of just sort of 
um, in their cars, sort of driving by next to them, like, are, are you safe? You know, where's your mummy? <laughs> and I mean, I felt like it was a bit ridiculous. They didn't, you know, they were just walking in their neighborhood. But I, but the reality was that people were watching out for the kids, right? And um, so I always experienced um, a sense of real warmth and protection from mm-hmm. my neighbors. Now, I didn't live next to a drug house. And now, let's be honest, drug houses are all over our cities. These are not things that no, are right sure. the, in those... The biggest grow-ups are in the fanciest neighborhoods They are. Calgary. And this is, I guess, too, what I wanted to offer was one of the things about a community like mine, which in some ways lets it all hang out because no one can afford not to hide to. to. (laughs) Nobody can afford to hide it. The opportunity in that is that you, you just, you see the truth in humankind. You see the truth in our communities that I believe repeats itself in every single community. It doesn't matter where, how much money you have and how many walls or how high the fence is or how big the garage is. The, the reality of life in Alberta Avenue repeats itself in all of these communities. It's because just it's the, it's the nature of humanity. It's the nature of humanity. This, yeah. We're going to feel, experience addiction. You know, just some of us are going to be able to hide it better than others. We're going to experience family violence. Some are going to be able to hide it better than others. Let me tell you about the sex trade workers in my community. Many of them live in my neighborhood. But if you I've seen charts of um, from the police stats where they've shown where the women live, who they've picked up and then where the sex buyers live, who they've picked up. And it's this fascinating, like, look at the sex buyers are all from the donuts of the community and And then the sex sellers are in the center of the community. And I guess, who would I rather live next to? I got to say, and maybe this is just my personality, but I would kind of rather live next to her because I sort of know it. It's, It's out front. It's obvious. How... How do you feel about the fact that your neighbor is a sex buyer? Does that change the way you think about the sex trade? If you were to really think about the fact that that trade impacts your neighborhood too, you just can't see it yeah. right and and are we safer because we can't see these things right or are we safer because we admit that we're vulnerable and we'll band together precisely I, because we're vulnerable and also because we understand that vulnerability makes people f- make choices that are difficult Absolutely. And uh, I mean, this is one of the reasons I tell the story early on about um, Danny. So Danny Mm -hmm. is the 40th murder um, in the city. And the city of Edmonton got like, you know, the (laughs) blessed by this becoming something that was national news. Like we were in the Toronto Star, I think, is Deadmonton after this 40th murder. And uh, it was the most murders we'd had in a year. This is 2012, I believe. And um, at the time, I was pregnant with my third son and my friend had had this massage table that she set up in this sketchy garage (laughs) behind her house. But it was like, it looked sketchy from outside. But when you walked in into this back room, it was just like, I can't describe it any else but a womb of a room. It just was, it was always warm, lit by candles, David Gray on the, you know, on the stereo. And this table, this massage table that she started buying these, this foam for me. It was like foam that you use in um, studios, like the, the radio studio here. It's flat foam. And she would start cutting out space for my breasts and for my belly. So as I grew, I could sort of still lay down on this massage table. And I went for the whole pregnancy and it was the one place where where I could lay on my front, which if you're pregnant and you've you experienced know it, you know how big that, that is. is. <laughs> and then it also was this place where it was the one place where I had no work, I had no dishes, I had no other kids, I had no responsibilities. And it became this space where emotionally I found a kind of a pre- protectiveness, right? Mm-hmm. And then, which made it all the more stark and startling when Danny is axed in the head about uh, essentially 20 feet away from from my massage bed in the um, front entrance um, of this owner-occupied drug house. And um, it made me think about this tension that everybody had been talking to me about earlier before we moved in, which is you're not safe. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to kind of tease out like this idea of safety, like who's not safe? 
how is it that we determine we're not safe? When does our gut tell us we're not safe and we have to tell our gut that it's not true? Or how do we tell when our gut is telling us you're not safe? How do you assess whether that gut response is from bias, from prejudice, or is from a real safety situation, situation yeah, right? That you need to deal with. And, and I think that this theme of safety and fear is one that comes up a lot in almost all the essays because it's one that I'm so curious about. Like, so at the end of the day, let's be honest, Danny, who had been drug addicted for 20 years, who'd struggled with his identity for his whole life as an adopted 60 scoop kid, um, you know, the, met people like Danny were the ones that really were, were un, vulnerable, unsafe. right? Yeah. Um, people like me who wandered around my with my kids, you know, I, I got to be honest, like, even, you know, even the people that were really, really cut could see kids and either be happy with them or they'd walk across the, you know, the the, the road because they felt shame. Like, I mean, my kids in many ways were a protective factor for me. Right. And so I wanted with Danny and, and, and I found Danny's sister, as I'd said earlier, and she told me his long kind of story and the stories in the book around how she sort of struggles with how um, how to be a family member to someone who is is really is in such a deep state of addiction that they become you know re- really difficult to be in relationship with right yeah. and um and so for me this question of how do we determine what's safe or not is one that um is one that i i continue to wrestle with i mean when i drive down here to calgary from edmonton nobody says oh my god you're going to calgary you're driving on that highway and and you're bringing your children like and you know statistically it's the most dangerous thing you could ever do with your children this is true right and we don't we don't believe it and and so but the truth is that even though it's not factual even though it's fiction that fiction that we believe in that we're safe in our house leads us to feel good about our life which leads us to have quality of life right so in some ways quality of life isn't based on fact no. <laughs> quality of life is so based on our perception of our experiences. And, and that is not nothing. That's something. Um, but also when I realized living in my community, when I really realized what fact it was to live there, where I could trust my neighbor, where I could get zucchini seeds, <laughs> you, know, or, you know, zucchini seeds for free and arugula seeds for free, and where I could find all sorts of wisdom on those streets around how to make bread and you know, how to garden and how to fix my deck. Um, Those relationships gave me pause to say, man, this is quality of life. And it really comes from the people that are around me and the closer they are to me. Sure, there's going to be these negatives where in my one essay, hell is other people, you know, you have these tensions around, good Lord, you're really loud, you know, and why do you keep waking me up with your kids? That's what my neighbor said to me. But at the end of the day, I... I had so much better life with my neighbor, Laura, that those small, you know, ink sort of frustrations were just sort of part of the price to pay for being able to connect um, with someone on a regular basis and know my kids were safe and always had candy, (laughs) you know? So as a mediator, I always say perception is nine-tenths of the law. Mm, Beautiful. It doesn't, facts aren't. That don't have as much impact as mm. exactly what you say how we how we view things, but to go back to perception and the beginning of the story, I'm curious because you bought the house right yeah so you walked around those neighborhoods, you looked at houses, and you chose that house, and you felt good about that choice like that it sounds to me the way you tell the story that people's reaction to oh my god you bought where was a surprise to you so when you were wandering around house hunting what was your perception then so the funny thing actually if we were to go back 
1997, which is when we moved to Edmonton. Um, my husband and I actually know each other from elementary school, which is a little embarrassing. We grew up in the Crowsons Pass together. And so Calgary was actually the place where we would come to get our school clothes and, you know, it was the big city. Was the big city yeah. And um, we'd come for, you know, our grad party. But when it came to going, um, you know, moving away and going to school. I had family in Edmonton. My grandfather actually had owned, um, had, and both my grandmother and grandfather had lived in Alberta Avenue area. They'd grown up in the schools. My grandfather had had a, a shop that, um, appliance fixing shop right there on 95th Street and 118th Ave. And so I was drawn to Edmonton, A, because my extended family were there and I'd never lived anywhere where there was grandparents. Um, but I was also kind of found that, you know, Edmonton seemed more exotic than Calgary since Calgary was where we shop for Costco muffins <laughs> and new shoes. So um, so we bypassed Calgary, went to Edmonton, way up north to exotic north. And uh, Matt actually got an apartment right in Alberta Avenue. So it was about, I don't know, four or five blocks away from the little yellow house. When we first moved there, I felt fear total fear like I walk down 118th Ave in the day and feel just that strain where you feel like your your muscles are tense where you're always very alert almost uber alert to the point where you might you know mistakenly react in a way that was just inappropriate because you're over alert and um I felt nervous about taking the bus. I wouldn't go there at night. When he went home at night, I would always worry. Again, these silly fears, right, of, oh, he's going to get mugged on his bike, you know? like, And it's just... So this was before this the Little Yellow This was before Yellow Little Yellow House. So I guess I tell it because... I feel like familiarity is a really significant thing when we're talking about fear and mm -hmm. perception, accurate perception, right? My perception at that time when we first moved there was I was a, I was a small town kid suddenly faced with a big town. And it, in, in that part of town, the shops aren't all open. There's some broken windows. Um, there's dirt streets look dirty. There's some folks there that have a little bit of a weird walk. They look like they're high on drugs. I don't know what to do with people who, when they're high on drugs and in public, <laughs> and strangers, right? Like these are all things that I had never really faced before in my small community um, in the mountains. Now, that's not to say there's not dysfunction in the small towns. Again, it's just visibly looks different. Mm -hmm. And um, and so my lack of familiarity really, I was queued up. About three years after that, I started working at the Mustard Seed, which is downtown, right there in the inner city. And it was only about 10 blocks away from the Little Yellow House. And that experience changed my perception. It changed my uh, my ability to read risk, to read safety, to, you know, to understand and test relationships, right? And so uh, working at the Mustard Seed, and then my husband started working in the inner city schools, with the two of us working in downtown Edmonton, we began, again, to sort of become much more aware of what was normal and what was okay and how you could read a risky situation versus something that's perfectly fine, you know? Right. And so that experience led to us, I mean, I think led us to shifting our brain so much that five, six years down the road when we go to buy a house, we're sort of startled at, in many ways, being faced with the exact same response we had. That you used to have. So, like, and how short our memories are, right? right. I think as you kind of point out, is how short our memories are when we get to that place where we kind of have matured in an area or become more self-aware in an area, how quickly and we are to lack grace for <laughs> our former selves and the people that maybe haven't had those same experiences. Is, right. So you you touch a lot in the book about your family. You know, mm -hmm. you're you, they are part of the story, and you are quite self reflective when you say, uh, you know, where are the boundaries when I'm talking about my kids or my daughter at five, my daughter, what's my daughter at fifteen or twenty going to think mm -hmm. about these stories? And you are very mindful of not exploiting it mm. but you stay true to including them i mean you're talking about your life yeah. as you talk about your little yellow house and the neighborhood and they're part of that life right very much yeah so um talk to us about that like how do you as a writer find that balance stay respectful 
about the characters in your mm-hmm. in your book that are actually real people you know, your best peeps, right? Yeah, yeah I, who I hope to, like, remain, will remain faithful to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who will remain doing, continue to do funny things without worrying I'm going to exploit it for a funny yeah. story. Well, I think that that's always, you know, that's certainly always a risk. I never expected to write nonfiction, actually. I was always someone that wanted to write fiction, but um, nonfiction, of course, is where there's, you know, you can make a living as a writer. And so nonfiction is really, that's how I sort of entered into the nonfiction world writing for magazines and newspapers and um and then of course this story kind of captured me I felt like it was an important one to tell and I started writing it when my oldest daughter her name is Maddie she's 12 now but I started writing the book in 2013 so she would have been six years old seven years old and my youngest was essentially just a new new infant um and then my second was in between them so I had a six-year-old three-year-old and a new newcomer and in that way you write I wrote just what I thought was hilarious you know without real consciousness my mom was very conscious of my kids being in the stories she kept saying you should name them somebody different or you know she was very you know as a grandmother should be protective of of their story um so in the end, when it came time to the publishing process, I actually invited all of them um, to read the sections that they were in. And um, I changed some of the things. Um, and that based on, based on how their they feedback. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a really, uh, in, a, in an essay format like this, um, I mean, lots of writers have different perspectives on how they handle um, their the ethics around telling other people's stories. And yeah. My view has always been that I am first and foremost in relationship with the living. And um, secondly, I'm um, I'm responsible for the truth to Mm -hmm. the written word. And if I can tell the truth in the written word without impacting my relationships and my lived experience, then I will choose that every time. Right. And so with Madeline, most of the stuff she wanted out, and this is, again, her at 10, she had a self-consciousness suddenly. She had an awareness of herself and her own body and her space and her own identity. And so when she asked me to change things and where she asked me to change things was usually where I was what I, making a joke. So I was making a joke. I was telling a humorous, funny story that was I knew everyone would think was would laugh at or, you know, I often want to tell I often choose humor over anything else when I can. And so, but she took that as me making fun. And and in that way, even though I felt like there were some good jokes that no one will ever hear again, but I felt like I needed to respect that. And it really, nothing in the essay hung on that story. It was really just me using, needing a technique there, you know, needing a little tool to keep things light. And um, it's like, using the F word, right? Oftentimes there's other ways that you can introduce the same shock and tension, um, but you have to work a little harder. Yeah. So, um, so in that way, I, I, I respected what my family said. And I do dedicate the book to my husband and I say, you know, to Matt, to someday I promise to write fiction because, <laughs> you know, he, he and I were together long before I was a writer and he never really signed up to kind of be a main character in a book, right, to be exposed quite in the way he was. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to CJSW Writer's Block. Our guest today is Carissa Halton, and her book is called The Little Yellow House. So what about the broader... That that same topic then, but broader. I mean, now the book's yeah. out. Now you're talking about this neighborhood. You're telling the stories of the neighborhood. What's the neighborhood's response been? Well, so my neighborhood, I, I felt the most anxious about my neighborhood because it, uh, well, the neighbors that I couldn't, that weren't in the book precisely, specifically, but who lived had lived experiences in the neighborhood. So the people that are in the book, specifically named, almost all of them, um, the ones I could find were given their chapters and they reviewed it. And primarily I did it a little bit as a lazy fact checking because <laughs> then they could tell me whether I yeah. got anything wrong. Right. Because I didn't want to go go to print and have it just be a stupid error. Right. And I also wanted to test how they felt about the story. Um, my neighbor, for instance, Laura, who's in the story and the chapter title is Hell is Other People. We had... Um, 
the chapter does have a conflict between us as my kids are like wakes her up every Saturday and Sunday and she gets frustrated with us because we're the kids are doing that and it was a kind of an awkward exchange and the first iteration of it was probably more baldly just the uncomfortable exchange and she came back and she just said you know you know I know that's true but I feel like there were so many other things that we experienced together that wasn't just that fight and of course I knew that and of course I appreciated all of that but in my haste to just write the conflict because I was in interested in just exploring this sort of this reality that it's really hard to live so close to other people that it's really frustrating and doesn't everybody wish they lived on an acreage sometimes and um, that because I had a point to make and I was thinking less about the human relationship, right? I kind of just went boldly forward and wrote the conflict. And so that story actually has a lot more sort of um, breadth to it now that talks more about the, the, the beauty of our relationships as well as that challenge. And so I think that the story is stronger for it, for one. Um, but also it's another example of me kind of getting to test with somebody that I really want to continue liking to me um, and to be able to tell that story in many ways together. And I think as, as writers, we, you know, the law tells us that the copyright of our story is ours and we get the profits from it. But I guess I, I want to hold my stories a little bit more loosely in that sense that I feel like I am to some degree a co-author with the people that I name as sources. So I'm writing their story with their permission. And so I feel like I owe them that respect of being able to go back and forth to make that story as as correct as as they can see it. The other person that I changed a lot was for um, Danny's mom, actually, um, had read the story of his murder. And she's really struggled because in the first iteration, I described more specifically the murder scene it was a quite a, a terrible murder and um i sort of went with the photos and the you know police reports that i saw and i described it in a bit more gratuitous detail and um you know i think she held me accountable sort of just saying for one she was of course extremely upset by it as any mother would be and you know again I go and think what an idiot of course she would be like I feel sort of this horrible guilt at even the fact that I overlooked the reality that of course a mother is going to wrestle with with the but kind the of the eyes of a mother are different than the eyes of a reporter. another reader right and another yeah. reader right and I know that the reality is I'm writing a group of essays that I was always wrestling with how am I going to make sure people keep reading I don't have um, it's not a mystery in the sense that you have this always question, the outstanding question, who did it? Are they going to stay together? Are they, you know, you You're know, trying to say why I care about Alberta Avenue, but how is my reader going to keep caring? Exactly. How do you keep hooking them in? How do you yeah. keep them interested? And that was always in the back of my mind, the main challenge for me in both in structuring it and in writing it was I was had this consciousness that a group of literary Polaroids without plot um is a hard thing to kind of keep people reading through to the end right mm -hmm. I didn't want people just to read the first two two essays and then go meh right I wanted them to read through and so I felt like those kinds of tensions that were provided by gratuitous detail of a murder scene in the front of a drug step you know drug house steps sort of seemed to again add this color right but when it came time to you know speaking with Danny's mom I just had to acknowledge that that color I, I'm gonna have to try harder and work harder in other ways to get people to keep reading through because I wasn't willing to um, to exploit um, his death um, at the risk of again her pain for this small benefit of a reader getting a little bit of a kick out of it right and and so again these tensions regularly came up through the course in time and and, and I was always very conscious of my neighbors disagreeing with how I decided to describe the scenes and and in the reality the reality was I because I couldn't ask all my neighbors to agree with me I knew I needed to go ahead and just not always have agreement and I mean I think this is always a tension right Nobody likes conflict, but 
at the end of the day, too, truth is also uncomfortable. And Absolutely. I felt really uncomfortable about the fact that I was going to make my neighbors who I wanted to like me uncomfortable. And that's sort of something I just have to live with, right, is knowing that people have read it and people won't tell me everything that they disagreed with it. And but they talk, I'm sure, behind my back about the places and the spaces that they just felt like I was off. And I think as a writer, that's just this constant insecurity we carry with us, right? Well, some of the process you describe also is the essence of having a good editor in a way, right? Like we can't, we're too close to it as writers. And until we get some distance and get some other eyes showing us the different angles, we're not going to have our best work until we go through that process. Yeah, and I had an early editor actually early on who said, um, I want more of Matt. He's my husband. And she just said, I, you know, you need to give us more of Matt because he's an interesting person. He's clearly important to the story. But I had kind of in the earlier drafts, I'd kind of protected him from um, the story. Right. And so I ended up bringing him and, and, and building him out as a stronger character and sort of more pronounced in the story than than he had been originally. Thanks to thanks to my editor kind of pushing me on it. Hmm. So. Earlier on, you were talking about how neighborhoods are always changing and, and um, you know, that your neighborhood has changed since you ha- have moved into it. I'm just curious about, first of all, how it's changed and, you know, is that good? Is that bad? Um, what happens next with Alberta Avenue and what, do you, what are your hopes for that evolution so Alberta Avenue had a huge amount of money. So in starting in 2006, I believe, and going for 10 years, um, there was money that fixed the, they paved the roads. So they did all the essential things that an old community needs, right? So they changed the light standards, the all the um, garbages along the way. So aesthetically, it's a much more beautiful street. It's got wider sidewalks. It's got all of the offshoot streets. And why streets. did they do that? that they, that's the other thing that I was curious about. So, so it's they, great they did yeah. it. You got a zero. Yeah. You wanted better than a zero. But what was in it for the city, actually? Well, the city had this revitalization money. My understanding is that they had they had budgeted revitalization money, and they didn't needed to determine where was the most need. So the quality of life report helped them determine that, okay. right? right? And so that quality of life report, in some ways, benefited us greatly because it sort of showed just the extent of of the need, quote unquote. Um, when it came time to determining how to spend the money, they actually had multiple community meetings. Um, and they ended up determining, I think it was six different um, committees that were created that were essentially um, peopled by the neighbors, people in the community. Um, and these things, essentially the com- each committee was based on the key concerns. So there is one committee that was the you know beauty and revitalization, which was essentially the streetscape. Um, one committee was looking at safety. Another committee was looking at the arts. And so these committees actually ended up being significant drivers as to where the money was spent. And, and so, they were not just one-offs? Like they... they, they stayed for the they whole did. Yeah. term for of at least five years that I remember they five years they operated for and they had uh, directly reported to a city staff person with those a lead on the revitalization um, and a lot of that feedback went back to the city departments that ended up being incorporated into the changes and so I believe like the wider walkways sidewalks ended up being because the community asked for it um, there was all sorts of zoning changes that happened along the street and a lot of that was came out in negotiations with the neighborhood mm-hmm. as they just as they requested certain things right uh, a lot of the principles of broken windows theory were put into place right where if you keep a broken window broken it's going to more going to break but if you clean things up things are going to people will respect their surroundings there is also the theories around more eyes on the street equals a safer street. Mm-hmm. And so this community was more interested in having um, buildings along the main streets there that had a higher populations and density, right? And so there is all sorts of um, changes that happened that were 
feedback loops from the neighborhood. The most visible changes, though, have happened um, outside of the streetscape, has really happened through our arts festivals. So a lot of funding went to a group called Arts on the Avenue, which was there before the revitalization began, but ended up being um, leading two different festivals in the community. And so what it does is in the winter and then in the fall, um, Kaleido Festival's in the fall. And if you ever come to Edmonton, it's worth coming the second week of September because they essentially shut off at 118th Ave for five blocks. And then you have all like all of the arts, like theater is being done in a car in an alley, like, and you know, the audience is the back seat and the actors in the front on this porch above this, um, of the Spanish, um, grocery store there's this kind of outdoor porch and out pops like a trombone choir they're called or <laughs> these like puppets suddenly are singing and then there's another building where you see you see people dropping down from the ceiling and there's dancers on the walls with like their ropes and harnesses and it's just like a it's a festival of art surprises. It's just a mishmash of all sorts of cool things. And what has happened with the arts festivals is I feel like it's changed the perception of the rest of the city about the community. Like I can't tell you with whether the drug trade and the police stats have really changed. Um, that is somebody else's, that would be somebody else's work. What I can tell you is that when I go and tell people I live in Alberta Avenue, they say, oh, I hear that's a cool place. Or I visited it when I went to the arts festival. And, you know, what those festivals did is they brought in like hundreds of thousands of people who are experiencing the streets like I do in some respects, right? The seeing the dollar espressos and having a chance to visit, you know, get palm oil at the um, in Nigerian shop, right? Next to the main stage. And so this, again, it's, it comes back to familiarity. The more people experience a thing, the more familiar they get, the less fear they have, and the more open they're going to be to the experiences. So, so a positive event draws them in and helps them change their negative stereotypes. Exactly. And does it ha- has it changed the impact on the vulnerable people? I would say no. Like, there's still the sex trade. It's just gone underground a little bit more because it's more online. It's not as visible. It's not always on the street corners, right? You go to Kijiji instead. Um, so it hasn't revitalized so much that the yuppies have moved in and the poor people have moved out. I think that there's been a real challenge because the market crash, right? Um, the like housing market was so high in 2008. And there we saw major changes happening there where a lot of the, you know, six-person, rooming houses were being, you know, shifted over to a single family dwelling. But since like housing, you know, kind of fell, the bottom fell out. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of maintained its stability. We haven't seen the kind of crazy in and out and moving. And I mean, it's a lot of old housing stock. I mean, it's not like, you know, Victoria Park where you know, the city's just sort of bulldozing it. Like, yeah. we're talking about a community that has many century-old homes. And if you're leaving it to the free market to change, it takes a long time to revitalize communities. And also our lots are smaller, so they're not as attractive maybe for a builder to build. You can't build big, big, fancy houses. So so there's going to be certain limitations just by the built environment that mean, in many ways, Alberta Avenue will never gentrify to the extent of like a kind of full out wholesale um, change. Now that said, I think that when you ask about what I hope for it, I guess I hope that our community continues to maintain the the, the vibrancy and the vi- the viability, the life that it has that comes from the diversity. And the diversity, in my view, comes from affordable housing. Affordable housing is not just an issue for the poor. Affordable housing impacts my kids when they go, go to university. I want them to have affordable housing. I want affordable housing. I want yeah. my parents in their retirement to have affordable housing. Affordable housing is such a critical issue that is so often reduced to a discussion of social justice, but it's an issue that radically impacts um, 
the quality of life, quality of life in our communities. It yeah. means that, you know, it's only if you only have one type of housing and it's not affordable, you only have one type of people. But when you have an extension of different kinds of housing stock, you have young people, old people, families, uh, you know, rich people, poor people. And all those people, in my view, are needed for the ecosystem of a community to sort of feel safe um, and and connected. And so my hope, and I think what we see this in the very careful strategic work they've done with the community revitalization, is we see that there is lots of room in our community to grow, but to grow up, to grow in density in the areas where we need the density, where we need people to spend money at the African shop or we of the Portuguese bakery, right? We need more people to come to the community so that we don't just have a third of the build of the buildings, commercial buildings filled with great businesses. We want to see all of the businesses filled with businesses and we want to, but we need the people and we need people with money to support it. Right. And so that means we need people with capital as much as we need people on low income who can, and each of them bring different things to the table. And that's why I would argue that diverse communities end up, um, offering something for everyone and um, it brings a kind of a quality of life and a richness that um, I just think makes everybody better. So perhaps that's what other communities and and the readers of your great book uh, can learn from it then that you know respect diversity nurture diversity and everyone's stronger for it. Absolutely I think that that's really what my biggest hope is as it and 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 that's the other hope for me is that people that are involved in community development and urban design, environmental design, I really wanted people to read this book and see the humans that are impacted by our environmental um, decisions by, you know, these things that are so boring that happens at the development committee or, you know, like the a, abstract these impacts. So abstract, humanity. right? Yeah. But like if people could really just think about the fact, think about Bill, who's in my book and he saves a bunch of kittens and he's just this lovely story about a man who loves kittens and lives in a rooming house and doesn't make any money, but who is such an important part of the street as they try and battle all these feral kittens. And and I want, I guess, somebody who's in their head office thinking about, you know, a bylaw change to think about Bill and to think and remember that Bill is the one that's the most vulnerable often to the kinds of, you know, environmental design changes that we like to make. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, these things can make our lives better or they can make our lives smaller and more closed in and and uh, I, I I wanted to offer sort of a uh, the faces and names of the people that are in some ways so vulnerable in our communities that also often don't have a voice they yeah. don't even know what a development committee is right yeah. they don't even know that there's a house that the housing market is hot you know they have no idea that it's hot because they don't have the money to buy it but they they experience a hot market because they get kicked out of their house every six months because somebody new buys the house that they just moved into, right? Yeah. So these the folks end up experiencing their lives. The impact of their lives is all of these sort of macroeconomics. Um, um, but, but I think that those of us who have voice, who understand these big systems, if if we could remember those faces and those names, we might maybe go a little slower or might go a little gentler when it comes to a policy change or a, a bylaw change that, that we know will negatively affect that community. Or at least bring some curiosity to those decisions. Right, totally. So I think we're, we're out of time. Um, it's a wonderful book full of voices. It certainly... By the time I got to the end of it, I was like, I think I want to live there. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you very much for coming into Writer's Block and sharing these stories with us. I really appreciate you having me. 
The Writers Guild of Alberta is excited to announce the finalists for the 2019 Alberta Literary Awards and Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize. Each year, the Alberta Literary Awards and the City of Edmonton recognize and celebrate the highest standards of literary excellence from Alberta and Edmonton authors. Winners will be announced and awards presented at the Alberta Literary Awards Gala on Saturday, June 8th. The Writers Guild of Alberta and CJSW Writers Block would like to send our congratulations to those whose work is on this year's Alberta Literary Awards shortlists. Guild juries deliberated on more than 190 submissions to select 24 finalists in eight categories. Finalists represent excellence in literary work written by Alberta authors and published or created in 2018. We encourage you to check out the fantastic titles. Some May highlights for the amazing WordFest include on May 23rd at 7 p.m. at the New Central Library, an evening with the internationally best-selling author of Tigana and the Lions of Al-Rasan, Guy Gavriel Kay, as he presents his masterful new novel, A Brightness Long Ago. Set in the vivid world of early Renaissance Italy, the novel offers an extraordinary cast of characters whose lives come together through destiny, love, and ambition. CBC host Jennifer Keane will be doing the onstage interview, followed by an audience Q&A and book signing. And on May 25th at 1 p.m. at the Memorial Park Library, don't miss this afternoon with Scotiabank Giller Prize winning author of 15 Dogs, Andre Alexis's latest novel, Days by Moonlight. It's a darkly comical exploration of the perpetual question, how do we know the things we know are real and what is real anyway? This event includes an on-stage interview followed by a Q&A and a book signing. You can get tickets to any wonderful WordFest event at wordfest.com. Remember, generous listeners, Calgary's Lit Scene is rich and full of amazing readings for lovers of story, as well as professional development opportunities for writers. Monthly reading series and open mics happen throughout the month at our independent bookstores and cool cafes. Bookstores include Shelf Life Books, Pages on Kensington, Owl's Nest Books, and the new Pages in Inglewood. Look for monthly events such as Single Onion, Flywheel, Hip Bull Poetry Series, The New Beat, Storytellers, Inner City Stories, as well as the many events at our Calgary Public Libraries all over the city, and also at the Alexandra Writers' Centre. Thanks for listening. This is Love in a Digital Age by Calgary poet and musician Lori Ann Fuhrer with her band, Bird Heat. Waiting for word from you, some